Thank you for joining us for worship today. You are invited. We're thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, aren't we, today? Uh, we do not mourn or weep or pity uh, in our souls because Christ has risen. And not only do we celebrate that on Easter, but we celebrate it every day of the year. Uh, but we are looking forward to Easter and want to invite you out to that and I encourage you to invite somebody else. Uh, Pastor Harley put that video together uh, this week. Uh, Greg's going to post it online, and so your job now is simple. You go to Facebook, and you hit the share button, all right? If you don't know what that means, I'll teach you, okay? So it's really easy. We want to encourage you not only to uh, come, but also invite those uh, who need to hear about our living hope, that is, the resurrected Christ. And so take a moment today and uh, share that. Invite somebody. We'd love you I'd uh, love for you to do that. I uh, well, also want to encourage you. I heard a really good story I thought I'd share for just a few minutes up here. Uh, we have those tracks and evangelistic cards and these Easter invite cards as well that you can take and uh, pray over those and invite uh, your neighbor. Just this week I heard about Pete and Jessica Millen's daughters. They took about 20 of these cards and on their own took them to all their neighbors in their neighborhood and were handing them out and inviting their neighbors one by one. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Praise the Lord for that. We, uh, we can thank God just for their evangelistic hearts, but we could also learn from that as well. Uh, and so you have an opportunity to do that. We uh, ran out of all of them last week. Isn't that great? We ran out of all these cards last week, and uh, I'm praying. I spent this morning just praying uh, that the Lord uses these in your life. And so if you want to get some more, we ordered some more for you. I'd love to see them all gone as we uh, just use those different avenues so that people can get to Jesus. And that's what we want to see. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, thankful for Kobe. Kobe didn't mention, but we had a student this weekend accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Aren't we thankful for that? Let's just praise the Lord for that. We're so thankful for Kobe and his work and the, the kids' ministry. They had an event last week. Sometimes we miss that. I thought I'd show you a picture. I thought this was really good. Fifty-some kids along with volunteers uh, there. We love a multi-generational church. Isn't that great to see so many different generations a part of the worship service. We are so thankful uh, for each and every hand that's involved in that. Christy, Pam, Kaylee, they do an excellent job with our kids' ministry. So uh, if you find them today, if you see Kobe, I know Christy and Kaylee are gone, but Pam's here. If you see them over the next few days, will you just encourage them? Sometimes it's hard to serve in next generation ministry. I don't know if you've ever served in the nursery, but you know it's tough, okay? So just find them and encourage them. We're so thankful uh, for their work and, and their dedication uh, to the Lord. And this week, you're going to hear more about living hope, eight days of hope. We're going to be praying leading up to Easter. I want to encourage you to sign up for that. You can follow more of that in your Connect. I feel like I'm giving an infomercial here. Eventually, we'll get to the Word of God, but I feel like i got to just get this out. I am praying, and I'm believing that God's going to move. Are you believing God's going to move? I mean, do you really think God can move? I really believe he can move, and so we want to ask him to do that. And so starting next Sunday, we're going to spend some time in prayer for our hearts and those who will come. And so I want to encourage you to sign up for that. You're going to hear more about that this week, uh, but you can go ahead and sign up for that as well if you want to get involved in that. If you have your Bibles, open up to Jonah chapter 4 this morning. Jonah chapter 4. We are finishing our series in the book of Jonah today, looking at this rebellious prophet and the mercy of God. 
I've titled the series with a question, as you see, Are You Running From God? And the reason I did that was because the spirit of Jonah is alive and well today. Jonah wasn't the only one who has ran from God's will. We have all done that, and if we're not careful, we can do it again. And so we are looking at how to combat the spirit of Jonah in our lives. We look at Jonah in chapter 1, and what we see is that he ran from God's will. Chapter 2, he repented to God for his sin. Chapter 3, he received God's second chance. And now what we're going to see in chapter 4 is he is rioting against God and the purposes he has for his word and his life. You would think at this point Jonah would do what's right, but we see again Jonah fighting against what God wants to do in his life. And friends, we can do the same thing. Jonah becomes angry. He becomes upset. He's mad at God for one simple reason here in chapter 4. He's mad that God cares about unsaved people. Let that sink in for a second. Jonah is mad because God cares about the lost. Listen, he's mad because lost people matter to God. And if there's one message in all of Jonah chapter 4, it's that lost people matter to God. And since they matter to God, friends, they should also matter to us. Here's the problem, though. If we're all honest today, we would have to admit that lost people always don't matter to us like they should. And sometimes that happens because we're too busy. Sometimes that happens because we're distracted. Sometimes that happens just because we don't have a desire to tell people, to tell lost people about Jesus. But regardless of what the reason is, the issue is clear. Lost people should matter to us. The unsaved soul dying and going to hell should bother us. And it should bother us so much so that we, like the heart of God, go out and find them. And we tell them, and we bring them in. And so, friends, if you're here today and you say, Pastor Nick, lost people don't always matter to me like they should. What can I do? What can you do to gain a passion for evangelism? What can you do to gain a passion for the lost around you? I think Jonah 4 gives us that answer. It's here that you will see three reminders, if you're taking notes this morning, three reminders that we are to never forget if we want to gain a passion for the lost. Three reminders that we are to never forget if we want to gain a desire to see people saved. And I promise you, when you grasp these reminders, when you keep them at the forefront of your mind, you can begin, as God does in Jonah chapter 4, you can care about those who are lost. So what we're going to do this morning is walk through the text and we're going to draw our attention to these three reminders. And what I want to do is I want to actually jump right into uh, the first reminder today. And so here's the first reminder for us if we want to gain a passion for evangelism. We have to remember or we have to remind ourselves that we are to never forget who God is. We're to never forget who God is. Is. To understand this, we have to figure out where Jonah is at this point. If you remember, in chapter 3, God gives him a second chance. And then he gets to verse 10, and what does God do? The Bible says he has compassion when the people of Nineveh turn away from their sins. God has compassion on them, 
and he relents, or a better translation is to say he, he cared about them and he decided not to destroy them. You would think at this point, though, in chapter 4, if anybody was to be excited about this happening in the life of the Ninevites, you'd think it'd be Jonah. I mean, God was the one who used him, right? He was the one that was used to bring about the largest revival to ever take place uh, in the world today. Not only was he the one used, but he was also the one to receive God's forgiveness. You would think he'd be the one to be most excited. But where do we find Jonah at this point? We find him angry. He's upset. In fact, get a picture of his words here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I want you to notice this. It says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Literally in the Hebrew, we don't have a word in the English to actually translate over what Jonah is exactly feeling here. But if we could put a sense to it, we would say Jonah thinks it is completely evil that God forgave sinners. Not only is it evil to him, but it's burning inside of him. He's so angry that God forgave a sinner. He's upset with God. He's upset with what God is doing in the life of the Ninevites, and he begins to say, God, why in the world did you do that? Verse 2 actually gives us the reason why he's mad at God here, and we'll see here in a second that Jonah didn't run in chapter 1 because he was nervous his sermon would fall flat. <laughs> he wasn't nervous that he was in the presence of those who would destroy him. He's mad at the God of heaven who is compassionate. Notice verse 2. Here's what Jonah gives. He gives his reason for why he's upset. It says this, And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, listen, I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. In other words, God, I ran not because I was afraid. I ran because you're compassionate. I ran because I knew you were going to forgive those individuals. I ran because I didn't want to see what you would do in their life. I knew you would because that's the kind of God you are. See, Jonah was mad because of who God is. God is a compassionate God. And so what does Jonah do? He throws a tantrum. Literally, he's trying to manipulate the situation. He's so mad that he's sitting there crying, upset at God for saving sinners. Imagine being upset at God <laughs> to the point that you want to die. Verse 3 tells us he wanted to die. He was so mad that he wanted to die. Imagine being so mad at God that you wanted to die because he saved sinners. You talk about an arrogant prophet. He threw a tantrum. How many of you have ever experienced a child throwing a tantrum? Okay. I've learned that, right? A couple of hands go up. Uh, I'll give you my daughter for a day, and you'll learn real fast what it is for a child to throw a tantrum. My daughter loves, I'm going to show you a picture here. My daughter loves blueberries. Okay. Well, she's cute, right? Okay. You know what she is? She's a cute sinner. All right. You don't have to teach a child how to sin. All right, I'm learning that. The Bible talks about you're born with a sin nature. I've experienced that, okay? You, you don't have to teach a child how to sin. They, they learn it pretty, pretty quickly. 
One day I remember I was preparing dinner for Karis and Hannah was away, which is a disaster waiting to happen too when Hannah's away and I'm trying to watch the child. But I was preparing dinner for, for Karis and I remember I laid these blueberries out in front of her. And that was like a, a pregame snack, you know what I mean? Like you're trying to eat it, get prepared, and I needed some time. And so I'm cutting up the, the, the sustenance there that I need to give her. So I hand it to her, I take the blueberries away, I walk away to clean up. And when I do, I heard in the back something that sounded like food dropping on the floor. So I turned around, and sure enough, my ears didn't betray me. There is Karis picking up food and dropping it on the floor. And so I turn around and say, Karis, honey, you got to eat your food, and you can't throw it on the floor. So what does she do? She looks straight at me, picks up the food, and drops it on the floor. <laughs> Anybody ever experienced that before? So I said, Karis, you're not going to get any more blueberries tonight. You got to eat your food. Now, you thought the world was turning upside down for this little girl. She took her hands, threw them up in the air, threw her head against the high chair there, took her hands, swept them across the high chair, threw all her food on the floor, and threw a tantrum. Now, she was trying to manipulate the situation. Now, it didn't work for me. Now, I know what some of you grandparents are thinking. Don't let it work for you either, okay? <laughs> she doesn't need any more blueberries. She's covered. I don't need any giving her honor. She threw a tantrum to get attention. She threw a tantrum to see if she could get something within me to change my mind. Now, it's kind of cute when a child does it sometimes. <laughs> but when an adult does it, it's manipulative, right? It's disgusting when a, an adult throws a tantrum to get somebody's attention to manipulate the situation. And that's exactly what Jonah is doing here. He's trying to get God to change his mind. And so he throws a tantrum because of who God is. A God of compassion. Now, if I was God, at this point, Jonah would be done, all right? Second chance, I'll give you that. Third chance, you're done, Jonah, all right? You're done. He'd be at the bottom of the sea right now, and the fish finding him would be that hungry shark, okay? That's, that's Jonah, all right, at this point, if I were God. But that's not what God does. Notice verse 4. What does God do? Instead of destroying the prophet, verse 4 says, God asks a question of him. Notice this. He says, then said the Lord, dost thou well to be angry? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? God asked a question to pierce the heart of the prophet. He asked the question to see if the prophet would consider his ways and consider the problems that he has in his own heart. Instead of destroying the prophet, what does God do? He lives up to his reputation. <laughs> he lives up to Jonah's accusation. He's a compassionate God. I didn't point this out earlier, but I thought I'd tell you now. Verse 2 is actually a confession of faith across the Old Testament. If you ever see these attributes given to God in verse 2, you'll see it as a way of worship from the lips of God's people. We actually see it all the way back in Exodus chapter 34. That's the first time we see this list of attributes listed. And God is giving this list to Moses, and he says, Moses, this is the God I am. And when you see that throughout the Old Testament, it's a way for the people of God to actually worship the Lord and to give adoration to him. But what you see in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 is not worship. You don't see adoration. You see Jonah use it as an accusation. He's accusing God of being too compassionate. 
Just imagine that. You accuse God of forgiving sinners? You know, Jonah's a hypocrite at this point. I mean, think about it. What does God do in chapter 2 of Jonah? He forgives him, right? He's sitting in the belly of the fish, and God forgives Jonah for his sin, and at the end of the chapter, he shouts with a voice of thanksgiving, and he says, God, you are the God of salvation. Salvation belongs to you. You're the one who gets to decide, in other words, who gets to be saved. That's Jonah in chapter 2. He gets to chapter 4. God does something Jonah doesn't like, and what does he say? God, why would you do that? Why would you be a God of compassion? Why would you forgive somebody like that? Notice how the tables have turned so quickly in the life of Jonah. He went from praising God for salvation to accusing God for saving sinners. Jonah's a hypocrite. And what Jonah forgot is this. He forgot that if God is evil for forgiving the Ninevites, God is also evil for forgiving him. You think about that with me. If God is evil for forgiving the Ninevites, God is also evil for forgiving Jonah. See, Jonah is the older brother in the prodigal son, isn't he? He wants all the compassion, but nothing for those who sin. Because he thinks he's deserving, but in reality, he is undeserving. You see, Jonah's problem is this, and I don't want you to miss it. Jonah's problem is this. He has already forgotten the grace that was extended to him. Jonah has forgotten the grace that is extended to him. And by the way, friends, it's easy for you and I to do that as well. It's easy for you and I to forget the grace that God has extended us. And here is the problem. When we forget the grace that God has extended to us, we begin to question the grace that God extends to other people. When we forget how much mercy God has given us in the midst of our sin, we forget and begin to question what God is doing in the life of somebody else. And you say, Pastor Nick, how, how do I do that? You know, I'm not like that. I, I care about sinners. I, I want to see people saved. I, I, I'm not like Jonah. Really? What about the homeless man you passed on the street heading to church this morning? Did you care his soul was dying and heading to hell? Or did you criticize him because he was living in a box? What about the person at school, teenagers, that doesn't look like you, doesn't act like you, and doesn't believe like you? Do you care their soul's heading to hell? What about the person with a different skin color than you have? Do you care she's heading to hell? How about the neighbor? How about the neighbor who doesn't hold to the political view you do? They don't vote the way you do. Do you care more about winning the argument than winning the soul for Jesus Christ? Do you spend more time on the computer figuring out their position than you do on your knees praying for their soul? You see, here's the problem. We care more about the grace that God gives us than we care about the grace God gives somebody else. If we're not careful, we'll end up just like Jonah. And you may say, Pastor Nick, though, we got to call out the sin. You know, I know some of you theologians in the room. We got to tell them the truth. <laughs> we got to get the truth to them. We got to tell them exactly what's wrong with them. We got to make sure they know. You can't ignore the sin. I agree. 
You can't ignore the sin. Jesus died for sin. Jesus paid for the sins. We can't ignore the sin. And I'm not telling you to ignore the sin. I'm just saying don't forget about the Savior. You can't ignore the sin, but don't forget about the Savior. See, our God is a God of compassion. Never forget who God is. And when you begin to consider who God is in your life and what God's done for you, it will develop a passion in you to tell somebody else. Why? Because you're on an equal playing field. You see, the difference between you and I, the difference between a sinner who doesn't know Jesus and between me is the fact that I just recognize I'm a sinner. See, we're all sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. The only difference is the fact that we recognize it. When we begin to do that, we can gain a passion to see the lost saved. Number two, number two, not only are you never to forget who God is, but also never forget why you are here. Never forget why you are here. Verse 5 tells us that Jonah changes his location. He goes outside of the city to the east, and he sits on a hill, sets up a shelter, or some of your translations say booth, and he sets up this place to protect himself from the hot sun. Now, why does Jonah do this? Why not just stay in the palace of the king? I mean, he, he just literally led the king to the Lord. You could stay in the palace in, in a place of safety. But what does Jonah do? He goes out because he hates the Ninevites, but he also is waiting for God to do something. You see, he's waiting for God to rain down fire on Nineveh. Listen, he still thinks he's right. <laughs> he thinks God is wrong, and he's sitting there trying to find a safe place, as we do on the 4th of July, to watch the fireworks go down, right? He's thinking that maybe, maybe this revival is temporary, and they'll turn back to their sins, and God's wrath will pour down on Nineveh. And so he sits out there and waits because he thinks he's right. And talk about the arrogance of a prophet. Talk about the pride, thinking you're better than God, thinking you know more than God. He's hoping that these sinners will die. Imagine, imagine watching a whole city come to know Christ, and you're sitting there under your breath mumbling, man, I hope you die in your sins. That's where we find Jonah at this point. And so God asked him a question in verse 4, as we saw, and he does that to get him to examine his heart. But what does Jonah do? Instead of examining his own heart, he examines a city. He judges a city he judges a sinner, but he doesn't judge himself. Friends, what I'm trying to get at is that our job on earth is not to condemn. So we don't sit here, and God hasn't put us in this place to condemn every single sinner in this world. Now again, I'm not saying ignore the sin. Sin is real. I'm just saying don't spend your whole time there condemning every single person you can. That's where you find Jonah. Condemning all the sinners around him, thinking he's better than all of them. Our job is not to condemn. We are not here to tell people every reason they're wrong. When you say, Pastor Nick, how do I condemn today? What, what do you mean when you say we condemn uh, these people? I'll give you an example. Just go to social media, right? Some Christians literally think it's their job to get on social media and correct every single problem in this world. You know how I know that? I'm friends with some of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding, not y'all, everybody else. <laughs> but we do, we got some friends. I know you got some, we got some of these Christians, they write a diatribe, right? On Facebook, they're like, look at all these problems in our world. 
that line at Walmart's too long, what do we do? We go in there and complain about the generation that's lazy, don't we? You ever see that? We don't agree with our neighbor politically, so what do we do? We go in there and correct him, <laughs> thinking that we got all these reasons, condemning every single problem that we see in this world. Somebody cuts us off in the car rider line and we get upset, what do we do? We say, I can't believe you did that. Or better yet, and if you say this to me, I'll be offended, so don't say it to me. Better yet, we don't like what the pastor says on Sunday, so what do we do? Go around the dinner table and condemn the sermon. We critique the sermon. It's the very word of God. <laughs> and we're critiquing what the pastor says because we don't like it. Listen, if there's a problem with what the pastor says from the word of God, I'd probably say you better start with yourself because it's probably a problem with you. It's the very word of God. Well, we sit there and critique everybody we can, right? Because that's we think. We think our, our life is there to condemn, but God says, that's not your job. God gives us a job, by the way, Matthew 28. What does it say? Go into all the world and critique all the sinners. No. <laughs> he didn't say, go into all the world and fix all the problems that we have socially. No, he says, go into the world and what? Make disciples. See, our job is not to condemn. And here's the issue. I want to share a story with you. Here's the issue. When you condemn, when you condemn people, when you condemn the sinner, you lose opportunities to witness. I don't care what you say, you lose opportunities because the lost world, I promise you, are watching the way Christians act. They're watching the way that we respond publicly, how we respond around them, how we respond in our, our neighborhoods. And so we, we have to be careful because literally somebody's soul, somebody's eternal destiny, literally could be changed as a result of the way we act or react tell you a story. Hannah's grandmother, her name's Virginia, and I got her permission to tell this story. I, I'd love to tell your testimony one day. I won't tell you the whole thing, but she grew up in a, a terrible environment. In fact, some things I can't even repeat publicly. She grew up in this terrible home environment, and as a kid, her, her guardians would, would not take her to church, but they'd let her go to church. And so as a kid, she'd go to church and she'd go to the food bank there because sometimes they didn't have enough food and she'd get food from the food bank. And then she'd go to VBS and she'd go to all these activities. And she said, she was telling me this story and she, she told me this and I thought it was so good. She said, I loved church because it was the only place that people loved me and didn't judge me. She said, I loved to go to church because it's the only place that somebody cared about me. And she goes on to tell that story. And later on, because of the influence in her life, she came to know Jesus later. She wasn't even a Christian at this point, by the way, as a kid. She'd stumbled to church. And these people, regardless of what she looked like, regardless of the way she acted, they loved her. And she later got saved as a result of the influence of those church members. And I think back and I say, many times, some of the reason that my mother-in-law and my wife know Jesus today is because somebody didn't judge Virginia. Somebody loved her. Somebody cared about her. Somebody showed her the love of Jesus. Listen, friend, an eternal soul lies in the balance. And if we sit there and condemn, guess what's going to happen? We may lose our opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Our jobs are not to condemn. Secondly, our jobs are not to be comfortable. See, Jonah desired comfort over the souls dying and going to hell. 
You'll notice verse 6 here. Look here. It says, And the Lord God prepared a gourd or a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow of his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah, what, was exceedingly glad, not because somebody got saved. Why was he glad? Because a plant. Jonah had his motives all turned upside down. He was happy he was joyful over a plant, but not the souls saved. There's a problem. So what does God do? Verse 7, But God prepared a worm, which we don't know the nature of it, when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, verse 8, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, a scorching wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished himself to die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah cared more about his comfort than he did about the souls dying and going to hell. He wanted to be comfortable <laughs> instead of caring about the lives of those who could spend eternity away from Jesus. Listen, friend, our job is not to condemn and our job is not to be comfortable. God didn't save you so that you can sit and sour. I don't know who needs to hear that today. God did not redeem you so that you can relax. See, Christianity is not a religion of comfort. Listen, if you're living Christianity in comfort, you're living the wrong Christianity. Christianity is a life of sacrifice. It's a life of service. It's a life of giving yourself, as Andrew did in the New Testament, to what? Bring people to Jesus. If you're living comfortably, there's a problem. God didn't save you so that you could sit. God didn't save you. God didn't redeem you. God didn't give you grace so that you could just sit around and do nothing. We're not to be comfortable. Our job is to go and tell people about Jesus. Number three, number three, and I'll be done. Give me a few minutes here. Never forget who God is. Never forget why you're here. Number three, never forget what really matters. Never forget what really matters. At this point, Jonah is angry about what God did. He's angry about the plant. And so what does God do? He begins to examine the prophet again. He asks another question, a third question in this chapter, by the way. And he gets to do this in order to get Jonah thinking about his problems. Notice verse number 10. God says this, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for that which thou hast not labored. In other words, Jonah, you haven't watered it. You haven't nurtured it. You haven't taken care of it. You didn't make it grow. And he says, which came up in a night. In other words, Jonah, you have not taken care of this plant, and that plant is temporary. It literally came up in 24 hours and was destroyed. And you care more about that than you care about the soul in Nineveh. You see, his priorities are all out of order. Sometimes we sit there and we condemn Jonah. I imagine some of you are saying, man, Jonah... You literally care more about a plant than you do about a soul? See, we, we condemn him, but then we also forget about ourselves, don't we? Is it really hard to imagine that Jonah reached this point when we consider our own life? So you know what we do? We spend sometimes more time in our gardens than we do with our lost neighbors, don't we? We, we, we spend more time gardening than we do evangelizing. 
We, we spend more time at the soccer field with our kids than we do meeting the neighbors who don't know Christ. See, it's really not too far-fetched to say that we also are Jonah many times in our life. We care more about the things of this world than we do about the eternal soul dying and going to hell. See, before we condemn Jonah, we should consider our own life because we're there. We're there. We spend more time thinking about the temporal than we do the eternal. God says, can you not care about the soul? You care about the plant. Can you not care about the soul? What a stinging question. Why don't you ask yourself that question? I asked myself that question this week. Nick Decker, you care about mowing your grass, washing your car, exercising, taking care of all the things around the house. Do you care about the soul across the street? Do you care about the coworker that's laboring, that doesn't know Christ? What about you, friend? Do lost people matter to you? There's one person in this room that I know who does care about lost people, and I asked for his permission to do this. I got to thinking about our pastor. I got to thinking about his desire for lost souls. Many of you in this room are sitting here because Pastor Paul told you about Jesus. Many of you have family members today that are saved because Pastor Paul told them about Jesus. I got to thinking about his life. I did some research this week. I didn't tell him everything I did, but I did some research on Pastor Paul's life. I texted Karen. I said, Miss Karen, would you give me some good stories about Pastor Paul and, and witnessing? And texted back. started to read those stories. I was just overwhelmed. She said, oh, there's so many. And she said, but one thing I want you to know is, she said, when he got saved as a junior, all he wanted to do was tell people about Jesus. So he'd take the football team, he'd pick them up, take them to revival, he'd tell all his classmates about Jesus and guns held to his stomach, leading people to Christ 1,800 feet under the ground. Because all he cared about was telling people about Jesus. You know why? Because lost people matter to our pastor. And you know why they matter to our pastor? Because they matter to God. They matter to God. Friends, do lost people matter to you? Do you actually care that the souls across the street from you are dying and going to hell? Does that bother you? Listen, if it doesn't, you know what you have? You have the spirit of Jonah. There's a problem. We have so many good opportunities, so many chances. Do we spend time praying for those who don't know Jesus? Listen, I want to see a church that cares about the lost. I want to see souls saved. I want to see this altar filled with people who don't know Jesus. I hope you do too. You want to see people saved? Listen, we have a huge opportunity. We have a great chance to see all of those things in the next few weeks and across our lives. But even in the next few weeks, we can be praying about what God can do. Listen, do lost people matter to you? They matter to God. And they better matter to you. Let's pray together this morning. As JT and the worship team comes this morning... 
I want to just challenge your hearts for a second. I, I don't want to belabor the point here, but I want to encourage you to, with your head bowed and eyes closed, I want to encourage you to consider somebody in your life today that doesn't know Jesus, whether that's a neighbor you don't know, whether that's a coworker, a friend, a family member. Many of you have family members today that don't know Jesus. And I want to encourage you to think about that person. And then I want you to know that the altar's open this morning. You don't have to come and God doesn't see that you come to the altar and he thinks you're more special. But sometimes if you come, it really shows that you're burdened and and care. You can pray in your seat, but I want you to know the altar is open for you this morning to come and pray for that lost soul. And if you say, well, I don't have anybody right now, I want you to come and just pray. I want you to pray for those sitting around you. They might have somebody. We have neighbors who don't know Jesus. We have friends, co-workers that you can be praying for. Listen, the altar is open this morning for you to come and pray. I want to see God move in this room. I want to see God move in our community, our nation, our state. I want to see all these people. Will you come and pray today? as God works on your heart. Lord, thank you for your word and the power of it in our life. Lost people matter to you. And because they matter to you, they should matter to me and to us. And so, Lord, I pray over this time as you're dealing with hearts that we will be challenged by your word this morning to go out and proclaim the name of Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning? Again, the